You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Well, we are all Christians and as Christians... We believe that the Bible is the word of God and that when we listen to the Bible being read, we are hearing God speak. So today we're going to listen to God speak to us through the words of Jesus recorded in Mark 12. We're going to begin at verse 13. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. When they came, they said to him, Teacher, we, we know you're truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but you teach the way of God truthfully. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius. I want to look at it. They brought a coin. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they replied. Jesus told them, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God." And they were utterly amazed at him. You know, last week, uh, if you were here, uh, we kicked off our series in Mark 12 to 16. It's that uh, final quarter of the match, this last part of this uh, brief biography of Jesus. And that's one thing that we did, but actually we did something a bit more, didn't we? We started a conversation. We opened an opportunity for all of us wherever we might be, to ask the God question. Who is God? What is he like? And what difference can he make in my life? And if you are a follower of Jesus here today, in many ways, there is no better way to start this new year, is there? Than to reignite a love and a passion for our Savior. To rediscover his goodness and his love shown to us in his life and his death. But as we said last week, maybe you're someone who's always assumed the answer to the God question. You've always called yourself a Christian, you've always come to church, but if you're honest with yourself, in the deepest moments of your heart, you don't actually know what it means to follow Jesus. And if that's you, can I encourage you this year to be brave? Revisit those faith foundations, surface those doubts, ask that Jesus question afresh. It's not something to be ashamed of. In fact, can I say, it's one of the most courageous things that you could do this year. And if you're with us and you're not a follower of Jesus, and you, from time to time, ask that God question in the quietness of your heart, can I encourage you to take this year to really seriously, properly check out whether Jesus is the answer to the God question that actually we know Him to be. 
Last week, uh, we took a first step into this gospel, this, the brief biography of Jesus, by looking at a confrontation. Do you remember it? That the religious leaders of the day were having a standoff with Jesus. They were challenging his authority, and they were asking this question. Why should we listen to you? And actually, when you stop and think about it, it's a really good question. Why should I listen to Jesus? And in that standoff, this is what Jesus does. He tells a story. Do you remember that story about a vineyard owner who who sends his son to the tenants of his vineyard? But then they take that son, they seize him, they kill him, and they toss him on the trash, as it were. And in that story, Jesus showed himself to be that son. He said, that's why you should listen to me, right? Because I am the beloved son of God. But now we have that answer. Now we know who Jesus is, as it were. What do we do with it, right? Like, if Jesus is the answer to the God question, how does he want us to respond? To put it a bit bluntly, Jesus, what do you want from me? What do you want from me? In many ways, this is what he shows us in this next scene. You see, in this scene, we don't find a standoff and a story like last week. No, we see a trap and a truth instead. Uh, By now, the religious leaders, they realize they can't tackle Jesus head on. So they're smart. They set a trap. And Jesus then responds with a truth that, can I say, this truth has and continues to shape so much of our world today. So it pays us, it's really worth us listening to his response. So here's what we'll do. I want to show you the trap and the truth, and then I want to end with three things that Jesus wants from us. Three ways that we should respond to who Jesus is. Firstly, let me introduce, let me show you the trap that's going on. Last night, for those of you who follow my Instagram, uh, you'll know that I went to City to watch Hamilton. Um, I had someone behind me that was sobbing the whole time and kept kneeing me in the back because the uh, seats are that close together. Uh, but in that, in that play, it was really interesting to see um, Alexander Hamilton endorse the candidacy of Thomas Jefferson, his sworn enemy. So why would he do that? And it's because they both shared a greater enemy, Aaron Burr. Now, I know you're all thinking, Adam, that's spoiler alert. No, it's not. It's just history, right? Uh, and, and it reminded me of that saying, right, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. You see, let's face it, you and I, we don't have to get along, it's okay. But if we share a common enemy, guess what? You're suddenly my best friend. And that's something of the situation here in verse 13. Look at it, right? Then the religious leaders sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus. Just like Hamilton and Jefferson, the the Pharisees and the Herodians don't normally get along. You see, the Pharisees were a, gr- were a group of rel- Jewish hardliners who, who, in many ways, pushed for a kind of religious purity. And they pushed back against the influence of the surrounding culture. These were the religious purists of that day, and generally speaking, they wouldn't have been fans of the Roman Empire. But on the other hand, the Herodians would have been. You see, these were supporters of King Herod. And King Herod was propped up by the Roman Empire. They would have personally profited from Roman rule. So now you have these two groups, right? Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Jefferson, the religious leaders, the political leaders. They're not natural allies, but they form an unholy alliance against Jesus. They're not going to waste their shot, right? 
I find it fascinating, actually, that some people reject Christianity because they see it as some sort of outdated, oppressive institution that protects power and privilege. That's the church, right? But when you read Mark's gospel, it is so clear, isn't it? That Jesus is actually in conflict with institutional power. He, he repeatedly takes on the vested interests of the, of the proud and the powerful, and he lifts up and defends the humble and lowly. The idea that Christianity is just institu- institutionalized power is so different from this actual picture of Jesus. And in this passage, the religious and political powers, they team up against Jesus. And what do they do? They try to trap him in his words. You should be a close Bible reader. I love that word, trap. It's the same word that you'd use if you're hunting an animal down or if you're trying to hook a fish on a piece of bait. What are they trying to do to Jesus? They're they're trying to bait him. They're trying to give him enough rope to hang himself on in many ways. So look at what they say. Here's the trap, right? Verse 14. Teacher, we know that you're truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but you teach the way of God truthfully. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now, I want you to notice there's actually an irony in this question, because on the one hand, everything these people say is actually entirely right. Think about it. I mean, Jesus is truthful, right? John 14, 6, he says, I am the truth. It's hard to get much more truthful than that. And it's true. On on the one hand, Jesus doesn't really care what other people think. He only cares what God says. John 12, 49, Jesus says, For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command to say everything I've said. So here's the irony, right? On the outside, the Pharisees and the Herodians couldn't be more correct. But at the same time, their words are dripping with deception, aren't they? There is malice of forethought. There is an intention to deceive. Their sweetened words are laced with poison. And if we're reading this, we just want to scream out, don't we? We just want to warn Jesus, like, it's a trap, right? Let me tell you why. 20 years or so earlier, Judea had just become a province of the Roman Empire. And the government, they just levied this special tax on every citizen of Judea. Now, let me be clear. They already had a whole range of other taxes. They had their land tax, stamp, duty, GST. But this tax was different. Firstly, it was worth one denarius, a day's wage. Secondly, it represented Judea's subjugation to Rome is a sign of their allegiance to Caesar. It would be like in World War II if the occupying Japanese forces levied a loyalty tax on all Malaysian citizens, right? I can tell you, many Malaysians would not be happy to pay it. Most of us aren't happy to pay anything anyway, but you know, especially because of that. And many Judeans would not be happy to pay this tax either. Because it would be a sign that they were giving Caesar the allegiance that they should only be giving God. You can imagine tensions boil over. In 6 AD, a Jewish man named Judas of Galilee comes along and he leads a revolt against the Roman Empire because of this tax. So now, along come the Pharisees and the Herodians and they ask Jesus, hey, is is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And here's the trap, right? If Jesus says, no, 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 don't pay the tax, 
He becomes the new Judas of Galilee. He becomes an insurrectionist who's revolting against Caesar. If he says, don't pay the tax, the Herodians will arrest him. But if Jesus says, pay the tax, he becomes a sellout who bows the knee to a pagan king, a Roman sympathizer who's betraying his God. If he says, pay the tax, then the Pharisees will discredit him. Can you see, he's kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, isn't he? And you can hear the real question behind their questions. Jesus, who deserves our real allegiance? Is it God? Or is it Caesar? If he says God, they'll arrest him. If he says Caesar, they'll discredit him. There's the trap. Now, here's the truth. Firstly, notice in verse 15 that Jesus knows their hypocrisy. He knows their hypocrisy. That is a terrifying thought when you think about it, right? The word hypocrisy evokes this image of someone who's, who's play-acting, who, who's wearing a mask, who's pretending to be on the outside, who they are not on the inside. They pretend to be genuine, but in fact, they're deceptive. They say one thing, but in fact, they do another. And isn't that, let's face it, what people hate about Christianity? I mean, you might not follow Jesus, at least in part because you can't stand it when Christians are hypocrites. When we judge you, for the very sins that you see us indulging in. There was this really um, awkward, um, sharp meme that was going around uh, on, on Facebook uh, in the middle of COVID where people were like, you know, you must never wear a mask. And they say, I don't know why you're so against wearing masks at church because you wear one every week anyway. Uh, and it's like, oh gosh, that's real, right? Um, it's, it's not just you who can't stand Christian hypocrites. There is no one more against religious hypocrisy than Jesus and he sees it in their hearts, and he calls them out for it. Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. Bring me the coin, that's the value of the tax that you owe Caesar, and tell me, whose image and inscription is this? You see, if I took an Australian 50-cent coin, I don't carry cash on me anymore, so I'm not going to do that, right? But if I did... What would you see? You'd see the image of the queen, and you'd read the inscription, Elizabeth II. It's all about the change of the king, but for now, this is still her money. If I took a Roman denarius, I'd see the image of Tiberius Caesar, and I would read this inscription, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. This denarius is his. It belongs to him. So Jesus says in verse 17, well, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Pay the tax, right? Give the denarius. The, the piece of silver belongs to Caesar, so give him no less than his due. But give him no more than his due as well. Because as you give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, this piece of silver, give to God the things that are God's. Give to God the things that bear His image. And what do you think bears God's image? You and me. Genesis 1.26, what did God say? Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Friends, can you hear what Jesus is saying? 
Caesar might own your money, but God owns your life. Give to Caesar the silver that belongs to him, but give to God the allegiance that is his alone. Jesus is saying, Caesar might be your king, but only I can be your God. Can you actually see how masterful this answer is? In one breath, Jesus affirms the reign of Caesar, and he challenges the reign of Caesar. In one breath, he silences the Herodians and he silences the Pharisees. In one breath, Jesus shows us, though the kings of this earth are many, he alone is the king above every king. Just like we saw last week, Jesus is God's beloved son. So you might ask me, Adam, well, that's that's lovely, that's great. If that's who Jesus is, what does he want me to do with that then? Well, how should I respond? What, what does Jesus want from me? I want to offer you three reflections from this short passage on what Jesus wants from us. Firstly, come to Jesus with humility. Come to Jesus with humility. Remember, right, what the Pharisees and Herodians said about Jesus was actually entirely true. It's true that Jesus is truthful. It's true that Jesus doesn't care about what anyone thinks. It's true that he only cares about speaking God's words. The problem lay not on their lips, the problem lay in their hearts. They were not coming to Jesus with an honest question or a humble heart. They were coming to him with a deceptive question and a malicious heart. A question that sought to trap him. A heart that sought to reject him. And I want you to notice something else. There's actually a double irony in this question. The first irony is clear, right? Their lips contradict their hearts. That one's clear. But here's the second one, and it's possibly even greater. You see those words when they say, oh, Jesus, you don't care what anyone thinks. Let me unpack what the words literally say. They say, you do not look at the face of men. You do not look at the face of men. And you know what? how true they were? Well, Jesus saw right through their smiling faces and right into their deceptive hearts. So, friends, can I say, if you're, if you're someone who is here and you are asking that God question for the very first time, or maybe you've assumed it your whole life and you're asking it afresh, can I urge you, please come to Jesus with humility. Too often we ask Him a fair question but with a fake heart. And I realize it almost starts, maybe it's a youth leader thing, right? I've been youth leading for so many years. And it always starts with that phrase, is it lawful? Is it lawful to follow Jesus but give my heart to another? Is it lawful to follow Jesus but still remain captain of my own life? Is it lawful to follow Jesus but live by the moral standards of our world? Now, the cynical part of me, which is only a very small part of me, goes, if you've got to ask, you know, But on the other hand, let me be generous and charitable, they are entirely fair questions in their own right, aren't they? And if they are your questions, please ask them. But have you ever had that experience of someone asking you a seemingly innocent question, but you know they've already decided on the answer? They're asking you for a very different purpose. For years, um, uh, I I, uh, served as a youth group leader. I was Ben Yong's youth group leader. He looks exactly the same now as he did 10 years ago. And, and Ben wasn't this, he was, he was great, but I often had high school guys come up to me and go, oh, Adam, um, do you think it's okay if I date that girl? And I'm thinking to myself, 
why are you asking me? You've already asked her out. What you want is my approval, and I'm not going to give you that, right? But, but you know they've already made up their mind. In fact, in law school, there was a guy who would always ask me questions about Jesus, but it was actually very clear that he wasn't really looking for an answer. He was just looking to catch me out, to prove Jesus wrong. And he wasn't, you know, he wasn't even seeking to hide it. If we're going to ask Jesus the God question, we need to ask it with honesty and humility. Because he sees the motivation of our hearts. If we come to him in pride and power like the Pharisees and Herodians, we will never know the truth. Because we will have blocked our ears and hardened our hearts. Can you see what Jesus wants? He wants us to come to him with humility. Secondly, he wants us to see that he is good for our world. Jesus is good for our world. Some people uh, seem to think that Christians have this obsession with overthrowing the government, establishing a theocracy, and imposing our faith on the country. And to be fair, if you go online most of the time or read Reddit, that is what some Christians want to do, right? Like in some contexts, you'll even see some Christians or people who call themselves Christians will seek to engage in acts of violence in the name of Jesus. But can you see that's actually so far from what Jesus is telling us in this passage? Jesus is affirming the role of the state. He's affirming the goodness of government, even a government that is opposed to the gospel. There there is, in some religions, a streak of aggression or an endorsement of violence. But can I say, you will not find any endorsement of physical violence against others in the Christian scriptures. The violence we might see elsewhere is foreign to the Christian gospel. In Romans 13, the Apostle Paul writes this, Let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. Please note, Paul wrote those words to Christians living under a Roman emperor who wanted to kill them. In 1 Peter 3, Peter writes, Submit to every human authority because of the Lord. And those Christians were living under ongoing low-level social rejection, you might remember from last year. And in John 18.36, Jesus himself says to Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Friends, can you see, Jesus doesn't come to incite violence or insurrection. He doesn't come to overthrow governments or upend societies. No, Jesus is fundamentally good for our world. And he then makes us into people who are good for our world. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul urges that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority. It's what we did just before when Rachel's praying for the leaders over us. See, friends, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I hope you can see that Christianity is about far more than just going to heaven, good though that is. It is true that the center of Christianity is reconciliation with God, and the scope of Christianity is the renewal of our world. And in focusing on the renewal of our world, we must not lose the center. But in focusing on the center, we must not lose sight of the grand plan that God has for all things. See, it's about God bringing heaven to earth, and the good lives we live in this world are a picture of the good world to come. 
So for those of us who follow Jesus, we must make sure that we give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We must live such good, godly, and honorable lives that everyone around us will see that Jesus is good for them and is good for our world. Finally, finally, what does Jesus want from you and me? He wants us to give him our whole life. He wants us to give him our whole life. If I took that denarius, right, and I looked at the words that were inscribed on it, let's look at it again. It would have said, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Did you notice that son of the divine? Do you see what everyone in the Roman Empire would have called Caesar? Caesar, the son of God. Well, I wonder now, can you guess what Mark calls Jesus at the beginning and the end of this gospel? Look at it with me. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark 15.39, when the centurion who was standing opposite Jesus saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. This is if when Mark is writing this biography of Jesus, in the most polite and respectful of ways, he's sticking it to Caesar, isn't he? Who is the Son of God? It's not your king. It's Jesus, our God. Just feel the gravity of that moment, right? You have a Roman centurion, one of Caesar's own men, standing opposite looking at Jesus, Caesar's great enemy, And in that moment, his eyes are opened and he sees, ah, yes, that's it. Jesus, not Caesar, is the true Son of God. Here, this is my King. I would like to think that this Roman soldier in that moment, in his heart, bowed the knee to his true King. But I want you to feel the even greater gravity of this moment. Because notice, when is it that this Roman centurion sees that Jesus is God's son? It's not when Jesus is sitting on this grand and lofty throne. It's not when Jesus comes with armies and destroys Caesar and his armies. The moment where this Roman centurion sees that Jesus is the true king is when Jesus hangs on a cross. When Jesus dies to save his people. Do you see, friends? Jesus is a king totally unlike Caesar. He doesn't rule with power, privilege, or prestige like the Pharisees or the Herodians. No, he is a king whose throne is a cross. He is a king whose crown is made of thorns. He is a king who dies a horrific death to carry his people's sins, to bear the wrath of God, to reconcile us with our Creator. And he is a king who loves us so much that he lays down his life for the very people who killed him, for people just like that centurion. And friends, can I say, if all that is true, then it's quite obvious, isn't it, what we owe this King of ours? It's quite clear, isn't it, what Jesus wants of us? 
do we not owe Him our whole lives? After all, we bear His image. We're stamped with His glory. We belong to Him. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so also we also bear the image of the man of heaven. We bear the image of Jesus. Friends, we might give our taxes to our government, but we give our heart to our King. What does God want from you? What does Jesus want from you? He wants your heart. He wants you to live with Him as your King. He wants you to give Him your life just as He gave you His. If you're someone who's always assumed the answer to the God question, and you've heard before at church, we need to take up our cross and follow Jesus and give Him our whole lives, but you've never known why, here's the reason. Jesus has shown Himself worthy of our trust, worthy of our faith, and worthy to be followed. He is not asking us to do for Him what He has not already done for us, to give Him our everything, just as He has given us His. You think about those beautiful lyrics, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, even that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, love so divine, it demands my soul, my life, and my all. If you want to see Jesus as the King, look at the cross, the moment where He gave His all for us. And if Jesus gave His all for us, will we not give our all for Him? Before um, I trained for gospel ministry, I worked in Canberra uh, for a year in politics. It was a good year, a fun year. I remember when I left uh, and we had my farewell dinner. Love those farewell dinners. You always get very good presents as someone else pays for dinner. And one of the senior advisors who'd worked in Canberra on Capitol Hill for years, he became quite angry, actually, at my farewell dinner. He wasn't a very polite man, but you know but Jesus loves him, right? And he asked me in front of everyone, he goes, so Adam, tell me, do you seriously think that Christianity is more important than politics? It's a bit awkward, right? Like, I just kind of want to eat my steak, right? Like, just leave me alone. I don't, I don't want this now. I'm like, oh, what do I say? I want to be polite, be a good witness for Jesus, right? But my boss in that moment, he was the Senate Majority Leader of that time, Thank God he stepped in, right? And this is what he said. He says something like this to senior advisor. He says, you know, Chris, what we do here in politics is important. It changes people's everyday lives. 
but only Jesus can change people's hearts. And that's something we can't do. He was a Christian, FYI. Right? <laughs> I think he understood something of what Jesus was saying here in Mark's Gospel. That we must give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. But it's Jesus, not Caesar, who is the beloved Son of God. He alone is the true King of our world. He alone is the God whose image we bear. He alone is the one to whom we must give our full allegiance, our soul, our life, our all. Because He is the King who showed His glory and His kingship most, not when He sat on a throne, but when He hung on a cross and died for you and me. How can we not give Him our all? Can I pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, you are the creator of our world. You are the king of our lives. We bear your image. We owe you everything. But even more than creating us, God, you saved us. You redeemed us in your son. And we belong to you. So for those of us who don't yet follow you. Help us see what that Roman centurion saw. Help us see that in the death of the Lord Jesus, he is king and we owe him our everything. For those of us who have assumed the answer to the God question our whole lives, open our eyes afresh to see Jesus in his glory as the king who deserves our whole lives. And for those of us who already live with Jesus as our king, Yes, may we give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But God, may we give to Jesus the things that are his. May we live our every day taking up our cross, denying ourselves and following Jesus. If he has given his all for us, how can we not ask of you, take my life and let it be consecrated, holy Lord to thee. These things we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.